This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and this week we are traveling from the Andes to the Amazon across one of South America's most varied and beautiful countries, a place ripe for adventure of all kinds, but perhaps less visited than some of the other South American destinations. It's been on my bucket list for ages, and after this, I know it's going to be on yours too. We're going to Bolivia. Are you ready? Let's go. Taking us there is travel writer Shafik Megi, whose book of this journey is called Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia. It's based on more than a decade's worth of travel to the country, researching and writing the Rough Guides guidebook to the country. So he has literally written the book on it and knows all the hidden corners and awesome things to do. It's incredibly well written and very detailed and in-depth, as well as being a hell of an adventure. But this story is also about something deeper, too. While traveling up and down to every corner of the country, Shafik realized that there was a bigger story to be told. Not just about Bolivia, but about our world, too. It's a story about the clash of past and future, which Bolivia is right now very much in the middle of. That dynamic of push and pull that shapes our world. We're going to have some fun. We're going to travel from the stark white plains of the Salar de Ayuni to the most biodiverse place in the entire Amazon rainforest. We're going to discover a lost city and a mountain that eats men. But we're also going to do what all good explorers do and dig deeper and try and discover what these wonders we find can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. So we're just about to get started. But first, I just want to say, if you are enjoying the show, then please consider helping to keep it going by becoming a patron. For the cost of a single pint a month, you will get ad-free shows, exclusive episodes not available anywhere else, and lots more. The sign-up link is in the show notes. You can look at those right now on your phone, even while you're listening to this. The website armchair-explorer.com also has those details. Or just head over to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast. Please also remember, come and hang out on the social media, armchair explorer podcast across Instagram and Facebook, and sign up to the newsletter for background information, adventure inspiration, and lots more. Come and hang out. I want to hear about your travels too. We're going to get on well. But for now, get ready because we are about to set off on our adventure. Now, the first time Shafik visited Bolivia, he was just backpacking through and he fell in love with it. He knew he wanted to come back. And then a few years later, he quit his job as a sports reporter in London to follow his dream of becoming a travel writer. And all of a sudden, he got his lucky break. What took me back to Bolivia from a professional point of view was working on as a co-author of The Rough Guide to Bolivia. And I was really lucky on lots of respects to get that commission. 
not least because Bolivia at that time was going through a particularly dramatic period of change on a social point of view, on a cultural point of view, on a political point of view. Millions were being pulled out of poverty. The economy was growing at great rates. There was a, a flourishing of indigenous pride and identity, something that had long been repressed in the country. And so my initial plan was just to write, you know, a classic travelogue, looking at the fascinating history of the country, looking at how Bolivia, a place that many people beyond its borders couldn't place on a map, helped to shape the modern world. But through my travels and my research trips for Rough Guides, I really realised that, you know, in many respects, the future has already arrived in Bolivia. Bolivia stands on the front line of many of the touchstone issues of the 21st century. Many of the issues that all of us, wherever we are in the world, are going to be facing in the years ahead. Obviously, the climate emergency, but also populism, the war on drugs, migration, and so on. That really inspired me to kind of broaden my focus and to both look back at its fascinating history, to try and draw up these fragments of history that have largely been forgotten, but to look at how it was coping with these modern challenges, what it says about Bolivia and what lessons and messages there are for the rest of us. And that is exactly the book he wrote. It's based not on a single journey, as many of our episodes are, but a series of numerous journeys over the period of a decade as he was writing and updating The Rough Guide to Bolivia. And the more of that in-depth research he did, the more the country captivated him. And an idea started to take shape, the shape of a book, a book that would trace the story of Bolivia. And he began with the indigenous people who lived here and made their mark here thousands of years ago, when Bolivia wasn't even a name, let alone a country. He began before Bolivia. Bolivia has an incredibly rich indigenous and ancient history. And one of the most fascinating Examples of this is in the Llanos de Moxos, which is a little visited part of the Bolivian Amazon. And a thousand years ago or more, an incredibly uh, sophisticated, developed and intelligent society built in excess of 20,000 earthworks through the jungle, in the rainforest, along these waterways. And these earthworks consist of these mounds, these huge mounds, the size of many football pitches put together on which people lived and which villages were built and also causeways and reservoirs and aqueducts and all of these kind of things. They were really shaping the landscape. And today, few people really beyond Bolivia know about them and even fewer people go out to visit them. And one of the most interesting places I visited, one of the most you know distinctive and eye-catching moments in my travel writing career was visiting something called a Lomo which literally translates as a hill, but this is one of these huge raised mounds in which people built their homes to uh, escape the uh, seasonal floodwaters. And I stepped onto like a natural hill and immediately my feet started to crunch over thousands and thousands of shards of ancient pottery that were just scattered along the beach. And I had a wonderful guide who showed me round. We saw where a family who today, the ancestors of the people that built these earthworks still live on them. But he also showed me that, you know, a bit like daffodils popping up above the surface in, in springtime, through erosion and flooding and rainfall, you have these examples of ancient pottery that emerge every year. And he showed me one, which was this urn, really. It was almost perfectly intact. And he showed me in the, the centre, and there was a jaw of teeth 
from a child that died many, many years ago. And, you know, this community in the Moxos would, you know, bury their dead in these funeral urns to preserve them, to protect them from the erosion. And to come, you know, almost literally face to face with this was a, um, you know, it was an incredibly mind expanding moment. And this is just one example of this really understudied and underexplored part of the world. And these incredibly beautiful pottery, very finely worked pottery with uh, geometric shapes on them, are kind of so ubiquitous in this area that people just use them in their gardens, they use them as pots for their plants. It's so common that they're often overlooked. It's really changed our perceptions of the Amazon and the cultures that, that lived there. One, that complex, very sophisticated societies developed there, and also that they really shaped the environment. They created environments so that they could fish, so that they could hunt. They adapted themselves to a rapidly changing and very difficult environment. And I think that really has lessons for all of us in the years ahead. When we think of the first indigenous societies of Latin America, the first people to really move beyond a tribal hunter-gatherer existence and begin to reshape the world in which they live, we think of the Inca, the Mayans, we think of places like Machu Picchu, Chichen Itza, Tikal. But what we're starting to realize is that those places were just the most obvious ones. Here in the tropical lowlands of the Amazon, people were sculpting the land to their needs and the pressures of their environment in much the same way as those more famous ancient civilizations, building and growing complex cities and societies of hundreds of thousands of people, all working together in the most densest jungle on the planet. And the site of Llanos de Mojo, this little known, barely visited region, proves it. It proves that although we may think of the Amazon as an untouched wilderness, that's not true. Complex societies developed here thousands of years before the arrival of Christopher Columbus and the conquistadors. And that realization has changed our entire understanding of human history and who we are. But to understand the indigenous history of Bolivia specifically, Shafik would need to leave the lowlands and travel to the top of the Andes in a place unlike anywhere else in the world. He would need to travel to the spiritual heart of the Inca. So from Tiahuanaco, I traveled to Lake Titicaca, which is an amazing, you know, it's an inland sea in the middle of the Andean mountains. And from the town of Copacabana, this is the original Copacabana, it gave its name to the more famous neighborhood in Rio. But from Copacabana, I took a small boat uh, across the surprisingly choppy lake to Isla del Sol, the island of the sun. And for the Inca, uh, this was considered the birthplace of the sun, the birthplace of the moon, and the birthplace of the, the Inca dynasty. I should say something about the boat crossing, though, because it does get a lot choppier than you might think for a lake. There's a brilliant description of it by a British traveller who visited in the early 20th century, who said it was the only place on Earth that you can get both seasickness and altitude sickness at the same time. Anyway, after I survived the crossing unscathed, I was able to follow an ancient pilgrimage trail around Isla del Sol. This has been trodden by pilgrims from across the Andean world for, for centuries. You pass these ancient tambos, which are way stations, these ancient ruins, uh, these stepped terraced fields um, in which the Inca turned mountains into fields and created a flourishing agricultural economy. And all of this is in, with the lake as a backdrop with the snow-covered Andean peaks around you. 
It's still occupied, so you find modern residences there. And you really get an insight into both the history of this part of the world, but also the fact that this is a really living culture. The Isla del Sol, Lake Titicaca remains of, you know, incredible spiritual and uh, religious significance, not just in Bolivia, but across the Andean world today. Lake Titicaca is the highest navigable body of water on the planet. It's 12 and a half thousand feet above sea level. It's 120 miles long and 50 miles wide and surrounded on all sides by sharp Andean peaks. Coming across it the first time is like discovering an ocean in the middle of one of the highest mountain ranges in the world. It is perplexing and awe-inspiring and shrouded in mystery and wonder. It's not surprising then that it was considered a sacred place for the Inca and other indigenous people of the region. And in walking that pilgrimage around the island, the sacred route of the eternal sun as it's known, Shafik was following in the footsteps of thousands of Incan pilgrims who had come before him. It's a powerful place. As he walked, he passed the sanctuary, the sacred rock, believed to be the dwelling place of the sun and the centerpiece of the entire Andean spiritual world. He walked through the labyrinth, a maze of interlinked rooms and low doorways, and then finally emerged in Umani, the largest of the island settlements, where it is said, if you drink from the Incan fountain there, you gain the ability to speak Quechua, Aymara, and Spanish fluently. His Spanish is coming along nicely, but the magic water hasn't quite kicked in for the others yet. When the Spanish arrived, they plundered many religious sites, including Isla de Sel and the ruins of temples and shrines that encircle the lakes. From that wealth of stolen treasure, legends sprang up of a lost city of gold hidden in the jungle. And although the search for the fabled El Dorado went on for centuries, it was never found. What was found, however, was a mountain of silver. And that would shape not just the story of Bolivia, but the story of the modern world today. It's called Potosi and it's the home of Cerro Rico, the mountain that eats men. And that is where Shafik was headed next. So Potosi is one of the highest cities on earth, more than 4,000 meters above sea level. It's a stark, cold, quite melancholy place. The architecture is absolutely beautiful. It's colonial era churches and mansions. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And all of this stems from the mountain that rises above the city called Cerro Rico, Rich Hill. And this was the richest source of silver that has ever been discovered on Earth. During the Spanish colonial period, according to legend, so much silver was taken out of the, the mountain that you could have built a solid silver railway line all the way from Potosi to Madrid and still have enough left over to build a solid silver train to ride on top. And of course, all of this came at great cost for the indigenous communities that were forced to labour in the mines, for enslaved Africans who were trafficked over to the mines and forced to uh, bring out the precious metal. And it also had a seismic impact on the world that we live in today. This is the place that globalization was born, that global trade was born, and that the links between every part of the world, Europe and Asia and Africa and the Americas, really came to fruition at the first time. 
It's a remarkable fact. The silver trade from this one mountain was the economic foundation of the entire Spanish Empire, enabling it to wage wars against England, France, the Netherlands, the Ottomans and the Philippines. It was shipped across the world and fueled the growth of the Chinese economy, helped to build much of the Great Wall of China and ultimately, as the price of silver dropped, caused the collapse of the Ming Dynasty. This was the start of world trade and it shaped the geopolitics of the time and the world as we know it today. But it came at a terrible cost as the indigenous people of Latin America and enslaved Africans were forced to work the mines of Potosi under terrible conditions, giving it its name of the mountain that eats men, for so many would die in those underground tunnels. And perhaps most unbelievable of all, those conditions still exist today. Before entering the mine, if you'd asked me if I was claustrophobic, I would say no, not at all. I, and in fact, I'd been into mines before I'd been to gold mines in Brazil, but nothing quite prepared me for entering the mines of Cerro Rico. The mountain is now resembles Swiss cheese. It's a maze of what they call rat holes, which are these very narrow mine shafts. Very soon after entering, we were crawling on our hands and knees to get through, you had to squeeze yourself into these narrow nooks and crannies. Throughout this, you hear explosions, the music of the mines, as my guide described them, which resounds and reverberate along the, uh, the mine shafts. You feel trapped, but after a certain point, you have to keep going. There is no way to turn back. You just have to follow the guides. You have to trust in the guides and their experience. And my guide worked in the mine as, as a miner for about 15 years before coming to a mine. So I kind of tried to rationalise that myself. But then, you know, it is in your head how many people die here. This is not a, you know, artificial, sanitised environment. People die here. Accidents are common. Cave-ins are common. Poisonings are common not to mention the arsenic that's covering your overalls. You cough a lot. And obviously the miners are dealing with these kind of dangers all the time. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, they have a belief system that helps them to cope with it. And uh, when I was speaking to some of them, I was uh, introduced to a character named El Tio, the uncle, who's a devilish figure who's known as the Lord of the Underworld. And these tributes are paid by the miners to him in the hope that he will protect them. So they give him presents such as 100% pure proof alcohol, coca leaves, they will light candles, sometimes they will sacrifice a llama, all of which you can see. And, you know, this may sound outlandish or otherworldly, superstitious to us, you know, outside in the safety of our homes. When you're deep underground, hundreds of metres underground, thousands of metres above sea level, in this you know incredible place, in a place where people die every month, it certainly feels like a uh, necessary and understandable safety net. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. 
Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. About 15,000 people still work the mine to this day, including children as young as 11 or 12, in darkness and danger for 12 hours or more a day. It is an unimaginable hell. Shafik was inside for a couple of hours, and when he emerged into the sunlight after the euphoria of that escape, he was violently ill. Such were the poisonous conditions within the mine. Shafik's guide, Antonio, who worked there as a miner for 15 years, said God reigns outside, but the devil is in charge in the mines. But then from a mountain that eats men... Shafik travels to a landscape of the moon, a place like nowhere else on earth, somewhere spectacular, somewhere on every traveler's bucket list. But beneath that stark white dazzling surface, they are mining too, not for silver, but for something else. And it's changing the world in just as profound a way as Potosi once did. Absolutely. Otherworldly is the best way to describe the Salar de Uyuni. It's really like nowhere else that I've encountered before. I mean, it's incredibly flat. It's so flat that NASA can use it to calibrate their satellites. It's so flat that you can see the curvature of the Earth, in fact. And it's blindingly white. I've never been anywhere so blindingly white. When you get the sun out, it's just the glare is incredible. And the surface of it is covered with these hexagonal and pentagonal shapes caused by evaporation, but they look like giant fish scales. It feels like you're traveling across the surface of a giant white fish. And around the salt flat are these volcanoes, are these mountains. Again, you're at high altitude, you're around 3,600 meters above altitude. And it's an incredible, you know, it's a trippy place to visit. And the only thing that breaks the expanse are these what I would call islands of giant cacti, which are the, the remnants of ancient volcanoes that pierce their way out of the salt flat. It's a beautiful place, but it's also a very dangerous and challenging place. The other thing is this feels like a timeless landscape. I mean, it's the bed of an ancient lake and you can really feel this when you're traveling across it. But change is coming to this place. But, you know, beneath the surface and my guide took me out onto the surface and helped me crush through the the initial surface and fish out crystals of salt from the brine below. But this brine that sloshes beneath the salt flat is incredibly rich in various minerals and metals, including lithium, which is really the substance that powers the digital age. It makes possible the batteries in our mobile phones, in laptops, in electric cars. It's essential for the transition to a low-carbon economy. And the Salado Uni and the wider region, which is part of the Lithium Triangle, has the largest reserves of lithium on Earth. In fact, it is thought that between 20 to 30% of the world's lithium lies beneath the Salar. 
And just like the silver of Potosi, it is transforming the world. Lithium is the bedrock of the digital age. It is an essential component of the lightweight, rechargeable batteries that power our mobile phones and laptops and electric cars, as well as the storage of energy from solar panels and other renewable sources. That's good news for the climate and perhaps the people of Bolivia too, with the economic benefits it may bring. But the price will be high because it means industry and extraction are coming in escalating numbers to one of the most strikingly beautiful places on earth. Covering almost 4,000 square miles and surrounded by mountains and volcanoes, Shafik calls the Salar de Ayuni a hallucinatory landscape, a stark white plain stretching out to an infinite horizon of dazzling hexagonal patterns like fish scales carved in wind and grains of salt. And the only way to appreciate its beauty and size is to go out and see it for yourself. The classic tour of the Saladia Uni takes around four days and it sets off from the town of Uni in these jeeps or land cruisers. And it takes you initially to a place called the Train Cemetery, which, as it sounds, has these rusted and quite melancholy looking engines, which hark back to the days when this was a really important mineral trading region. So you visit that and then you see some of the salt producing villages. You really get an insight into the lives of the, the people that not just survive but flourish in this very extreme environment. Obviously, salt has been a huge trading item here for millennia. And the salt production, very artisanal salt production, which is literally these workers called saleros who will take their pickaxes onto the salar or hack away at the salts and will pile up what they find into these waist-high pyramids are still a common sight on the uh, salar. And so these used to be transported across Bolivia on these long llama caravans. And then you get out onto the salar, you travel across this blindingly white expanse. If you're lucky, you can stay in what they call salt hotels, which everything the structure, the roof, the bed frames, the pool table even is made of blocks of salt. And near some of these salt hotels, you see these fascinating cave tombs, which are the burial spots of Aymara nobles, which is one of the biggest indigenous groups in Bolivia. It's the tombs of the nobility who fled south when the Inca invaded what is now Bolivia. In one of them, there's the skeleton of Jaguar that is strung up around the entrance. And people still today pay tributes to them. They take alcohol, they take coca leaves, cigarettes sometimes as well, all of which are, you know, signs of respect. And then from there, you whisk back across the salar and then into this neighbouring, and if you can imagine it, an even higher altitude landscape called the Reserva Eduardo Avaroa, who is named after a military hero. But here you can go up, you know, well beyond 5,000 metres into this protected area and you see these incredible mineral stained lakes so bright red and bright green you see these smouldering volcanoes you see huge colonies of flamingos so all these rock formations that have been sculpted by the wind but they look like they've been sculpted by a surrealist i think it's pretty much as close as you can get to experience what life is like on another planet this is somewhere that you really feel somewhere both ancient and completely beyond your realm of comprehension Shafik was visiting in the dry season and it was beyond comprehension, like nowhere else on earth, a thick white band, as he describes it, between the dusty brown soil and cyan sky. But in the wet season, it's arguably even more special 
For most of the year, the Salar is as dry as a desert. But in the rainy season between November and March, a shallow film of water collects on the surface, creating, in effect, the largest mirror on the planet. The entire world is seen in reflection. Earth and sky become indistinguishable. Come in the day and you will be walking on clouds. At night, you will be floating in the Milky Way itself. Locals call it heaven on earth because of the way it resembles that classic view of a celestial eternal paradise. And next up was another kind of heaven on earth. In fact, the polar opposite of the Salar, because Shafik was traveling from the desolate white salt flats to a place teeming with more life than anywhere else on earth. He was going to Medidi National Park, perhaps the least well-known but the most amazing and biodiverse part of the entire Amazon rainforest. So my journey to Medidi started in the city of La Paz and I um, got up early and got a flight out from the highest international airport on earth. And I've never been on a flight that has taken me so quickly between two such sharply contrasting landscapes. At one moment, I'm up in the Altiplano, surrounded by the Andes. And then suddenly, as I was looking out of this very small plane, I'm looking out of the window, and it seems as if the earth has just collapsed beneath me. The mountains just crumbled away, and they fall into foothills, and eventually into this emerald green flat expanse of the Amazon. And I could pick out meandering waterways through them, you could see the last spurs of the Andean foothills. And this is a journey that took just 30 minutes. And I've never been so quickly from one type of landscape to the other. The airport in Ruanabaque, which is the gateway to the Bolivian Amazon, is just a, a very rudimentary airstrip. And it's got a an open-sided hut, which works as the terminal. And as I got off the plane, I was almost immediately drenched in sweat. It's, you know, baking, baking hot. And Ruanabaque is a fascinating, fascinating place. It's this really remote town. It slumbered through much of the 20th century, but over the last 40 years or so, it's become a hotspot for ecotourism. It's in a beautiful location. It's, you know, as I walked through the town from my hotel to get some lunch, it was siesta time, so there was a few stray dogs, but there was no one really on the streets. It felt like I, you know, I was wandering through a ghost town on my own. They have the churning river, just to the side, you have these beautiful cast mountains that frame it perfectly. And just a short boat journey along the river takes you to Park National Medidi, which is really one of the most significant national parks on Earth. It's the most biodiverse national park or protected area on Earth. To put that in context, it is home to roughly 10% of the world's bird species in this small area. It's roughly the size of whales. So it has thousands and thousands of other species, many of which are found nowhere else on Earth. Medidi is one of the most remarkable ecosystems on Earth. A recent study revealed that this one park contains more than 200 species of mammals, almost 300 types of fish, 12,000 plant species, a third of all neotropical amphibians, and an extraordinary 11% of all birds worldwide. 
But that's just scratching the surface. Entirely new species of frog, snake, bird and cat that have never been seen before are constantly being discovered in the park. Jaguars, sloths, pumas, tapirs, monkeys of all kinds call this home. There are manatees and pink river dolphins in the water and more than 1,200 species of birds in the skies. That's more than the entire United States, including harpy eagles, macaws and 60 unique types of hummingbirds alone. It turns out that this tiny corner of the Amazon jungle may well contain a greater diversity of life than anywhere else on the planet. And Shafik was going directly into the heart of it all. I took a boat trip down the river into the middle of the park and I wanted to visit a place called Chalalan, which is really a pioneering eco resort. It was built by an indigenous community who were in desperate straits in the 90s. Poverty was at high levels. There were very few facilities, educational, medical. You were a long way, both geographically, but also psychologically from the Bolivian state. So there's very little provision for these people. And they really knew that they're going to have to help themselves. And so they built this beautiful, sustainable, responsibly run lodge on the banks of this beautiful lagoon, also called Chalalan. And they provided training, they provided water services to their community, they provided education, they provided training. It's a really positive story in one of the most spectacular parts of the world. So I wanted to visit just for those reasons and to hike through the rainforest and search for jaguars and to spot pink river dolphins and to encounter these incredible trees, these walking palm trees, which feel like they've been imagined into existence by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. But they're raised on tripod-type roots and they move across the uh, forest floor in search of the most rich soils and the best sunlight. So I wanted to visit and do all of these kind of things and fish for piranhas and indulge my rainforest fantasies. One of my most memorable experiences in the Bolivian Amazon was from Chalalan. It was a guided hike through the surrounding rainforest to another picture-perfect lagoon. It was incredibly hot and sticky and it was really a treacherous path. It was very muddy. We'd had quite a lot of rain recently. And the foliage here is really like a tide. It's like an incoming tide. It's kind of constantly lapping at you. You feel as if you can actually see it grow before you. And so we're hacking away with our machetes to strike a path through. And all around you, it feels like there's like avian car alarms are going off all around you because the birds are sounding their alarm calls. As you go past and you see flashes of iridescent colours as you make your way through, carefully stepping over these, you know, 20, 30 metre lines of leaf cutter ants. The tree branches are alive with fire ants and bullet ants, which are so-called because the bite feels like being shot. I didn't test this out firsthand. This was an almost waterlogged route, so we had to at times kind of balance precariously on floating logs to make our way across rivers and streams. Eventually we cut through a long abandoned coffee plantation, which had one solitary guide there still guarding it with his dog. And we borrowed his boat and took it out onto the lagoon to fish for piranhas. I've fished for piranhas several times now and still haven't caught one, but the guide just had a knack. It was literally within 30 seconds of putting the hunk of chicken on a line into the water, he got his first bite. And he, he was just tossing one after the other. He caught about a dozen piranhas that he just tossed into the bottom of the boat in which a puddle had formed because it had a slow leak. And these piranhas are thrashing about between our legs. So I'm kind of lifting my ankles up, hoping not to get a nip, all the while trying to catch some more to add to the pile. Fortunately managed to escape unscathed from that. 
And later on, they were cooked up for a delicious, delicious dinner. Although there's not a lot of meat on a prana, it must be said. But at the end of the night, we piled up all of their oversized jaws into this gruesome can on the dining room table, which, yeah, made for quite a sight. Paradise rainforest fantasies, indeed. Even if live snapping piranhas at the bottom of your boat doesn't sound exactly ideal, surrealist walking trees and idyllic ecologists surrounded by lush hiking trails and turquoise lagoons will do the trick just fine. After the Amazon, Shafik had many other adventures. In La Paz, the highest city on earth, over 12,500 feet high, he learned of changing indigenous identities as modernization, migration, and urbanization sweep through the country. Around the small town of Samyapata, he followed the Che Guevara Trail and learned of revolution, history, and politics today. He braved the youngest road, the Death Road, as it's known, dropping more than 11,000 feet in 40 miles, sheer cliff faces, no barriers, barely wide enough for a car. He met locals, he talked, he discovered corners where barely a tourist goes. And then, just before the end of his trip, he had one last experience that symbolizes everything his book and this journey was all about. So my journey and the book also finished in the city of Sucre, which is one of the most beautiful cities in um, South America. It's the constitutional capital of Bolivia as well. But it's also somewhere that really helps to symbolize lots of the themes and ideas and issues that I've kind of encountered over my years traveling through Bolivia and also that I've tried to approach in the book. It was formed off the back of the silver wealth in nearby Potosi, which resulted in beautiful architecture in the centre. It's known as the White City because of so many whitewashed mansions and churches and townhouses and universities and so on. But it's also a place with an incredibly long, you know, indigenous history that predated the Inca and certainly predated the conquistadors. But for me, the most fascinating part of Sucre is somewhat unexpected. If you travel out of the beautiful colonial era architecture of the centre and head to the outskirts, there's a cement works. And in fact, it's the most important, from a paleontological point of view, cement works in the world. You look at it and there's smoke belching from the tunnels. As I looked down, there were trucks going through the quarry and people at work. And then before me was this dusty white cliff. It stretched almost two kilometres into the distance. And I just stared at it for ages and it looked incredibly nondescript. It doesn't really feel like a tourist attraction. It doesn't really feel worthy of notes. But as I looked closer from a viewing platform, I started to notice patterns on the side of the cliff face. And then the patterns slowly materialized into footprints, into dinosaur footprints. And I saw one footprint and then another footprint. And then I saw more footprints than I could possibly count. And this is the largest collection of dinosaur footprints in the world. And paleontologists think that it was the site of a stampede. So millions and millions of years ago, 65 million years ago, in fact, the earth here was flat and it was silty, muddy, swampy water through which dinosaurs would roam. And at some point there would have been a stampede. And so a Tyrannosaurus rex, another big predator, would have raced through and scattering the smaller dinosaurs in its way. And then, as I went down into the quarry and stood within about a metre and a half from the quarry, and the guide was telling me that, well, after the stampede took place, the asteroid hits, tectonic forces forced the Earth upwards, creating the Andes and creating this cliff face. And then scroll forward, you know, millions and millions of years, and 
demand for cement means that this quarry was created. And the cement works, this big cement works, you know, the workers there just one day discovered all of these dinosaur footprints surrounding them in the quarry as they worked. It's a strange thing to see because there's people working, there's doing very mundane jobs, it's a very industrial environment otherwise. And you're seeing, on the other hand, these giant, giant footprints, 65 million years old or so, and you're kind of immediately between two different worlds. Bolivia often feels like it's a place where the past and the future collide and the one is constantly shaping the other. And I think nowhere is that more apparent than in this otherwise nondescript cement works on the outskirts of Sucre. He writes, It was nearly 1pm and the sun moved overhead, illuminating Cal Orco with a brilliant white spotlight. The footprints glowed, almost luminous. A tractor sent up spirals of chalky dust as it rumbled past. So close to the cliff face, the driver could have reached out and touched it. Explosions sounded in the distance, shaking the earth beneath my feet. Dinosaur footprints surrounded by cement works. The footsteps of the last dinosaurs on earth and the explosions of industry echoing in the distance. Here, as elsewhere in Bolivia, Shafik found a contrast between the ancient and the modern, the unchanging and the acceleration of the new. Bolivia, he realized, lived on the cusp of both worlds. And in many ways, that's exactly what this story is all about. Bolivia is a microcosm. Our world is on the cusp, too. Like tectonic plates colliding and raising mountains, the past shapes the future. But the future need not erase the past. Thank you, Shafik. Thank you for taking us on this adventure. The book of his journey is called Crossed Off the Map, Travels in Bolivia. It's available on Amazon or wherever you get your books. I'll also link to it on the show notes. It's a beautiful, incredibly well-researched and written book. And if this episode inspires you to check out Bolivia, and it has for me, it's an essential read for all the information and inspiration you need to make the most out of that adventure. You can also connect with Shafik directly at shafikmeki.com. That's S-H-A-F-I-K-M-E-G-H-J-I.com. And he's also on Twitter and Instagram at shafikmeki. Go and hang out with him. He is an awesome bloke to travel with. You're going to have a lot of fun. Remember, also, if you enjoy the show and think it's worth the cost of a single pint, then please consider showing your support by becoming a patron. The link is in the show notes. Go there right now. It's on the website, armchair-explorer.com, or just head over to patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast. You'll get ad-free shows, exclusive episodes not available anywhere else, and lots more. The ads cover the cost of the production, but not my time. So if you believe in the same values that we promote on the show, love for the outdoors, living life to the full, and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet, then give what you can. Help us to continue to spread that message and keep this show going. So that's about it, folks. Thanks for listening. Keep exploring inside and out. Keep that river flowing. Because the more we look for wonder, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.